Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. One thing I've learned starting startups in Japan for 20 years is that every time you hear people claiming that Japanese people won't do something because of unspecified cultural reasons, there's a lot of money to be made. In the 90s, people claimed that e commerce would never catch on because Japanese preferred the high touch, expensive department stores. But today, those department stores are struggling, as every year more and more commerce moves online. Ten years later, people were saying that online auctions would never work because Japanese people would simply not buy used goods for cultural reasons. They were wrong, of course. And today, Yahoo Auctions and Mercari and dozens of others are thriving. When a behavior is widely described as a result of cultural reasons, it usually means that the behavior doesn't really make sense and we can't explain it. And man, that is the perfect area to start looking for business opportunities. If you can discover the real reason for this behavior, And, and it's usually a rational economic reason. If you can discover the real reason for this behavior and fix it, you can make a fortune. You might have heard that Japan is a cash based society for cultural reasons, but we are already starting to see the cracks in that falsehood forming. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Lu Dong, the founder and CEO of Japan Foodie. A restaurant discovery app. And yeah, there are a lot of those. But this one is special. Well, not, not so much the app, but the business model. And the perfectly rational way in which Japan's cash based culture will migrate to electronic payments. And it's already working. In our conversation, Lou also provides some great advice for building multi sided marketplaces. And he tells some pretty interesting stories about tourism, fundraising, and women's lingerie. But you know, Lou tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Lou Dong, the founder of Japan Foodie and several other companies. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. You know, actually, recently we've been. Focusing on sort of serial entrepreneurs in Japan. But before we talk about your other companies, let's talk about Japan Foodie. So、uh, I started Japan Foodie、um, in 2015. What is Japan Foodie? It's basically a lot of friends from China, from the US, from all around the world come to Japan, to Tokyo.、So、whenever they know I'm in Tokyo, they always ask me, Lou, hey, I'm in Tokyo next week and next month. Uh, where should I go eat? right? So they never ask me where should I go shopping, where should I go、uh, sightseeing, but all of them ask where should I go eat. A lot of times I book restaurants for them, I give them、uh, instructions, and、uh, a lot of times I also、um, go to those restaurants with them to help them order.、Yeah. So, so is the site really is it more focused on restaurant discovery? Is it more focused on Japanese cuisine、mm-hmm. in general? What's Like、yeah. In a nutshell, what are we? In a nutshell, okay. So basically, help tourists discover and book and pay. 
That solves the three main pain points in terms of、uh, foreign tourists in Japan. They can't find restaurants, they can't communicate in terms of booking and in store, in restaurant ordering, and finally, they can't pay because 82% of the retail in Japan is done by cash. The payment pain point in particular is interesting because not only is so much cash, even the Even the payment methods that aren't cash、yeah. tend to be Japan only. They're like Suica or the Rakuten Pay,、yeah. or, or they're, they're something that foreign visitors don't have access to. Uh huh.、Um, yeah, well, before I started this company, I spent 10 years in China, started two companies in the e commerce area. So, where in this 10 years, e commerce became mobile commerce. So, 80, now everybody knows that 80% of the traffic right now is on mobile, right? Where the mobile payment,、uh, smartphone payments, as people call it, which in China there are only two,、uh, WeChat Pay and Alipay, right, became the major payment tool for people's daily life. So people live on those. Whereas they come to Japan, back to the Stone Age, I can't、yeah. use not only the smartphone to pay, but also a lot of places I can't even use credit card. The only, the only one thing they accept is cash, especially during lunch.、And、they're like, no, 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 for dinner we accept credit card, but for lunch only cash. Really? Yeah. What's, what's, So、What's the logic there? Exactly. So I, I, it, it, I had a lot of questions. Why, why, how come like, Japanese people love cash? Or how come the credit card or non cash payment adoption rate is so low in Japan?、Uh, the most answers I got are two. One is like, people love cash, period. The second answer is like, when people use cash, it's either easier to manage your expenses. Whereas if you use credit card, You get broke very easily. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I, I, there's a couple of simpler reasons, I think. I mean, if you look at it, the commissions that they charge the merchants are much higher in Japan、yes. than they are overseas. Yes. There are laws that prevent the banks from like, aggressively、yeah. doing consumer lending. So the banks don't make as much money on credit cards, so they don't push them as hard. These two questions I got from most Japanese, I don't agree. Because Suica is so widely used. You know, if you had a Suica and you have any other options to buy tickets using cash, you always choose the Suica option, right? Japanese people love cash. I think that's. I,、yes. I agree. Any, anytime、uh, you hear just、yeah. kind of this general,、yeah. oh, that's Japanese culture, that's the Japanese、yes. way, no,、nah, there, there's a business opportunity there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you're right. So basically, the charge for credit card to the merchant in Japan is probably the highest in the world. Yeah, I know.、Crazy. So the, the lowest right now is probably Rakuten Pay, among the other couple payments, is around 3.25. And the payment cycle is about 45 days.、Yeah. Right? And also, the post machine typically. Uh, cost somewhere between a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars for the post machine, and they charge you a monthly fee. And the reason they, they, they don't take credit card for lunch versus they take for dinner is because, on top of all that, they charge you three or five yen per transaction. On top of all that, so it's not so much that the Japanese consumers like cash, it's the Japanese merchants hate, hate. credit cards. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I don't blame them. It's great to see J- Japan foodie taking off because I think. You and I were talking about this like just when you were starting out、yes. in, in like the Starbucks in a basement of the、yes. Pondy Hills. <laughs>、yes. It's awesome to see you guys taking off this way. So, so you mentioned like the importance of discovery and reservations and payments.、Mm-hmm. So, of the three, is, is payments really the key or are they all sort of equally important? To the merchant and to the users, nobody cares about payment. You don't go to the restaurant because you can pay with such payment, right?、Mm-hmm. And to the merchant, they don't care payment in the way that because payment, whether it's 
four percent or three percent doesn't affect that much of their business. If you、mm. think about that, right?、Um, so, what do they really care? I think what they really care for the users a good, a wonderful experience. They really want to get most out of it in their limited time in Japan. So, the most value is actually discover and making sure you have you can get into that restaurant. You want to really want to get in, and also you want to know what's in there, right? A lot of times you go to a kaiseki, you don't you don't even know what you're eating. So a lot of value from the user, I think, is that. So we do a lot of content marketing, and for the merchant, what they really care is they want to have a good client base, and eventually, in the long term, they want to make more money. I think they are the two things they care. Okay, actually, let's let's dive into your your customer acquisition strategy. Multi-sided markets are really fascinating because you sort of have to be two different things to two different groups of people. Yes. Better start with one. <laughs> well, which one has been more challenging to pick up the restaurant owners、yeah. to bring them on board or to attract attention of the inbound tourists? Okay, so in terms of building a platform economy, you always start from B, like B to C,、mm-hmm. always from B. All right. Imagine Rakuten, right? Where you can put as where a restaurant version of Amazon or Rakuten, right? A user or C would never go to a website or app that that there doesn't have a decent selection. Of merchandise, right? So you always start with merchandise, and to us, restaurants are merchandise. Yeah. So、um, that's how we start out. So two, three years ago,、um, when I started this company, I knew I couldn't start with business with someone from the restaurant industry in Japan, right? So that's why I found、uh, this my Japanese co-founder of this company, who、uh, is the founder of、uh, this famous Japanese magazine called Tokyo Calendar. You may have heard of it. Yeah. And before Tokyo Calendar, he also Was a founding team member of this、uh, magazine called Pia Gourmet. And Pia is very famous. So these are these are the magazine pre-internet era, right? He has been in the restaurant magazine business for 28 years. So he knows in and out about all these restaurants. He interviews so many restaurants. So create contents for restaurant is his entire career. He had know how. So he brought you the credibility with、yes. the restaurant industry. Yes. So before even we、we'll、build a product, we already sold our service to at least 200 restaurants. And the, so, the promise, the、yeah. the service you were selling to the restaurants was, we will bring you foreign customers. We'll teach them how to behave in your restaurant and what type of food they should be ordering, and take care of payments for you. Yeah, well, exactly like the three pain points, right? That's attractive.、Uh, very, very similar. Yeah, very similar to the three pain points of、uh, the of the tourists. Very similar three pain points for restaurants too, right? When they want to have more foreign inbound tourists, they don't know how. Right, and the second, of course, you know how many restaurant people can speak four or three languages? No, right. So they definitely have problems in terms of the booking or in restaurant ordering. Well, and, and also for restaurants, unless、yeah. you're a big chain, it doesn't make sense to、yeah. to invest much in serving、exactly. what's going to be a tiny percentage of your business, right? Exactly, exactly.、Yeah. So a lot of people are comparing us with Gurunabi or Taberogu or Hot Pepper, which are the three most popular Japanese restaurant media. Uh, so our key difference between us to them is basically not only we can just convert those languages, also building the UX of the app is completely different from Gurunabi Taberogu. If you go to Gurunabi Taberogu, you don't even see restaurants after three or four actions or pushing buttons on the app, right? They start with the eki, but for foreigners, you don't even know where you are, right? So the whole design logic is different. That's、yeah. a fascinating、yeah. observation that I'd never really noticed until you just mentioned it now.、Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Every foreign food-focused application I've seen has the food in front of you from the moment you arrive. Exactly. 
And the Japanese don't. They'll start with your location yes. or some sort of higher classification, and that's interesting. I, I was, I, I, my guess is they just have too many restaurants on there, right? So just throwing all this restaurant on the top screen, it's actually create a lot of confusion, right? So they have to come with something, some way to guide you. But anyway, they're just a, to me uh, the web or mobile version of a yellow page. Yeah. That's basically very much so. That's a good metaphor. On the other side, we are what I call a service e-commerce platforms. Amazon, we're Rakuten. So the key difference is when I put it is is like you see a product that you really want to buy on Amazon, such a button called buy. That's the key difference between media and e-commerce. You can see a lot of information. Okay, fine. That's media. But you can do nothing about it. Furthermore, versus an e-commerce platform, you can actually buy it. It's just that simple. So is your business model a um, reservation fee? Is it a percentage of what they charge using your payment platform, a combination yes. of the two? Yes. yes. So listing so, is free and it's performance-based? Yes, right now. But uh, as we have more and more restaurants on, on our app, of course, there will be restaurants that want to pay a, a fixed advertising fee to be on top. Like, like Rakuten or Taobao, typically, if you look at their financials, most of their income is actually advertising. Mm-hmm. It's actually larger than their e-commerce platform fee. In, in reality, Taobao or Rakuten, they're an advertising company sure. rather than an e-commerce company. Even Amazon is moving that way these days. Really? Advertising mm-hmm. is one of their fastest growing revenue streams. Exactly, because it's always either charge marketing dollars than go through platform fee by each transaction. Yeah. Okay, let's shift over to the customer side. Okay. How do you target foreigners who want to come to Japan before they're here? How do you reach them? First of all, if, you, if you're Chinese, you want to go to Japan. How many websites or apps out there are actually doing what we do? Basically, help you discover the restaurants and book a restaurant beforehand and actually pay for the reservation beforehand and maybe also pay an order in the restaurant. Basically, that's what I'm talking about. There's no one even doing it. I, I, so now. But I guess like mindshare-wise, there's yes. companies like uh, TripVisor and, sure. and... Nobody does restaurant booking uh, in Japan. So Yelp and uh, TripAdvisor does some of the restaurant booking in North America, in the United States. So what's so important about payment? Basically, by prepay for the restaurants, especially in Japan, it's like you only have eight tables. It's eight seats, right? One big table, eight seats at the counter. If uh, you, two of you, uh, you got a two guys, you know, making reservation and don't show up, a quarter of the revenue is gone, right? And there's no guarantee. There's nothing to protect you, right? So, and which happened a lot. So one of the biggest pain points from restaurants, uh, which are popular among tours, especially Chinese tours, <laughs> is no-show. So one of the restaurants actually we contracted right now. So their um, no-show uh, rate at the peak, about 73%. So 73% of people booked don't show up. Oh, my God. Yeah, so you, can't, you can't stay in business doing that. You can't even run a business like yeah. that, right? So, and on average, Japanese people, are, I think they're the most, uh, I don't know, credible people in the world right now. Their no-show rate is about 1%. Mm-hmm. So 1% versus 75%, you know, you, you can't even... Well, there are a lot of reasons why they don't show up. You know, it's not completely their fault. A lot of times, they just can't find the restaurant, right? Or a lot of times, the Chinese behavior is just, uh, they just book a whole bunch of restaurants, they end up just going one. Right, right. It's, it's uh, a different yeah. culture. It's... Yeah, so there are a lot of culture issues with that. So basically, what we're trying to do is we try to uh, eliminate the no-show problem for the restaurant so that we protect the restaurant on one side and also so that we help, uh, you know, yeah. communicate for the tourists at the same time. 
On the inbound side, are you focused on Chinese tourists only, or you always start with the low hang, lowest hanging fruit, right? So Chinese is lowest hanging fruit for us because they have, they have the biggest number, right? So twenty five percent of the inbound tourists in terms of numbers is Chinese, and forty percent in terms of spending is from Chinese. Like what I mean by Chinese, by mainland China, and followed by Hong Kong, uh, Taiwanese, and Hong Kongese, and, and Korean. In America, so these are the top five, right? So twenty-five percent of the people spending forty percent of money in Japan, so the big number. And secondly, they don't need education in terms of、uh, mobile phone payment because in China nobody uses cash anymore. And especially two years ago, our our restaurant people just amazed. It's like they don't even know this thing can pay. You can pay use this QR code how? But Chinese people they just come here, scan the QR code, use their phone, and just pay. It's like wow. It, it is quite a culture shift.、Uh, yes. Even people coming from the U.S. find it very. Strange to be walking around with five or six hundred dollars in your pocket at all times. <laughs> It just feels weird. Exactly, exactly. People carry cash a lot. So basically, Chinese is lowest hanging fruit.、Um, they they they're used to mobile payment. They want to spend a lot of money in Japan,、um, especially on food. You know, Chinese people love food. I mean, all people love food, but Chinese actually. There's a very interesting、um, questionnaire done by JNTO, the Japan Tourist Bureau. At the airport, they ask、uh, for tourists from different country, "What's your budget per meal?" And then the people have the highest budget is from China, hundred fifty dollar per person. Really? Yeah, we want to eat really good. And guess who's the cheapest? American. Really? Yeah, their budget is about fifty bucks. Oh man. Yeah. That's、uh, a waste. If you're, <laughs> I mean, it's. It's a. But I mean, if you've got to conserve money somewhere and you're coming to Japan, a splurge on the food. It's just so good. You can never go wrong, right?、Yeah. So the first two years, it's almost entirely focused、uh, on the Chinese market, right? Yeah. So, what's the next step? You guys recently raised about nine million dollars. What is that going to be used for? Is that going to be going into other inbound markets? Is it going to be going in new directions with the technology? What's next? Yeah, definitely technology first. We think,、uh, first of all, we're a technology company, and secondly, we think we are a marketing company. So basically, what we do is、uh, we're going to continue build our multi-payment tool.、Uh, for example, right now most of the smartphone payment are not integrated with the post machine. Right. So the next step is we want to be integrated with the post machine, most major post machine in Japan. And also, we want to make our payment tool available for other apps. So basically, by releasing our SDK payment, any app that want to have a payment function, just like Stripe. So it's like a lot of the technology development is like in the next.、Uh, Six to twelve months, all around B two B side of that. Right now, we are the only one, but we think there are people going to catch up. But、sure. we want to just、uh, by, you know, putting ourselves into the post machine, but putting ourselves in other people's app. We want to have a, a, a really、uh, big install base. Kind of build an ecosystem、yes. around your your product. Yes, and of course our B two C payment side as well. So we want to have at least thirty to a hundred thousand merchant base in Japan. Now a lot of people are really concerned that after the Olympics in 2020, we're going to see this huge fall off in tourism. What's no, your take? No, I don't believe it. No, believe, no. First of all, you know there are countries. I've actually there are a lot of studies done by bankers. Personally, I was in Beijing during the Beijing Olympics. After the Beijing Beijing Olympic game, we saw a huge increase in terms of tourists coming to China or Beijing. I'm a big believer in. Post Tokyo Olympic, there's going to be a huge increase in growth instead of a decrease because the reason is there are only so many number of players who can actually be here to see these games. It's a two-week PR event, so you're broadcasting this Olympic to the whole world for the continuous two weeks, right? With Tokyo on.、Yeah. Um, 
So that'll just stay in people's minds exactly. for many years after the event. Well, at least two, one or two years, right? right? So people are like, wow, Tokyo, mm, interesting. I almost forgot about Tokyo. Let's go to, let's go to Japan, let's go to Tokyo um, after the Olympic. Well, I think most, <laughs> most sane people would not want to visit the city during the Olympics. Anyway. Exactly, because you know the uh, hotel price is going to be 3x, and it's almost impossible to get a ticket. Why bother? Um, go to Japan in the other seasons, in the Sakura season, right? Or the Red Leaves you know, season, right? The Koyo. And, and so that's from the market side and from the Japanese government side. Basically, Japan's economy has been um, stagnant for the past 25 years. They lost 25 years, right? So the, there are not many levers they can pull to actually stimulate the economy. And one of the few is actually inbound tourism. I agree. I, I, it's an easy win for them. Exactly. So it's called short-term immigration, right? So they come here, drop the money, and go without leaving all the problems. I, I think that's a really optimistic <laughs> way of looking at it, but I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I can see that being actually a more likely outcome than simply the Olympics ending and everything, everyone forgetting about Japan again. It's a beautiful country. It has a lot of tourism resources worthy visiting, right? Listen, before we talk about Japan in general and entrepreneurship yes. here, I want to back up a bit and, and talk about your experience running a lingerie startup in China. <laughs> okay. It, it's quite a story. So can you tell us a bit about Lemieux? Sure, sure, sure. So basically, I, so 2004, if you remember, right, it's for e-commerce, still pretty primitive. And my angle back in China was what kind of business model I can take from outside China for example, from Silicon Valley or from Japan and implement it in China. China has the most population in the world and people become richer. And my um, conclusion is uh, e-commerce. With that theme, I started two companies. One is selling men's shirts online uh, and the other is called Lemieux. It's basically a women's lingerie brand online. Um, so basically, I was the first to actually sell women's lingerie online in China. What led you to that niche? Was there a particular company that, that inspired you in the so, U.S. or was there, did yes, it just say like definitely. that? Yes. All right. So the first question is, even if I, I fail after a couple of years, two, three years, I still you know, wouldn't regret. So basically, I always should do my passion. I was actually pretty passionate about fashion. As a matter of fact, actually, I, I did fashion design for two years oh, right. before I came back to, uh, I came to Japan. Okay. So this was not a new industry for you. You understood the, the basics of the industry going into it. Um, is mostly from my heart, but I love shopping. I love fashion. Actually, I can make a jacket by myself. Really? Uh, yes. So right. I, I learned tailoring. I can. So it's 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 my hobby. It's my passion. I really love fashion. Right. You you always start with a, with a passion. And the second problem is how can I create a successful business model out of fashion industry? Right. Researching in the U.S. in the world about the successful apparel business models. And a couple of companies pop up, but the, the company caught most of my attention was Victoria's Secret. Well, yeah. who didn't know about them, right? Yeah. Uh, so basically, wow, you know, women have to wear lingerie, right? And what Victoria's Secret did different from traditional lingerie uh, manufacturers, it's a, a, a marketing company, it's a brand. All about marketing effort, right? So it was like, okay, basically take the Victoria's Secret business model, it's a lingerie company plus a marketing spin, and online offline play. Even before the internet era, Victor's Secret was doing mail order business. So what I call it is multi-channel retail plus a marketing branding play. 
it took off. You did quite well with that early on. Yes, yes. I think all the theories, all the strategy worked.、Uh, I think China was ready back then, right? Well, it, it sounds like Lemieux kind of became a victim of its own success because you you definitely struck a nerve. It was successful. You had three、uh, hundred plus people working for you、yes. at one point. You had shops. Yes. What happened? What happened was、um, so the first three years was a rally, right? So from zero to three hundred employees in three years, and to three million customers. Everything and, and actually the second year and into the business, two thousand nine, our advertising fee,、um, internet over the internet, we rank number two in terms of advertising spending in China. So we just carpet bomb the, the internet. You were the second largest ad buyer in China. Yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's, that's a lot of ads. <laughs> yeah. With the well, the reason for that is is Lehman shock. So after Lehman shock, everybody stopped、uh, spending on the internet and had a cash. I was like, okay, this is the time to to bomb. Right, so boom. So when everybody stopped spending on marketing, we were the only few guys, you know, on the market spending、uh, money on on, on the internet. And the, the internet marketing advertising fee was dirt cheap,、mm-hmm. and so our customer acquisition cost was really, really cheap. So by in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, we actually accumulated a lot of users、uh, with all this cheap advertising. The lesson I learned in the good three years is last man standing, right? When nobody has money, you're the only one who has money. Last man standing on the market, you're going to win. And so the last, and then, then basically. Uh, we peaked in 2011, and then from there it was downhill. The reason was very simple: our business model was entirely built around the Silicon Valley model, which is the J curve, right? So we didn't focus on building profits, but we we're building GMV or market share to basically、uh, try to grab as much as、uh, market as possible,、uh, just like the Amazon model, right?、Mm-hmm. Amazon didn't make profit in the first eight years, so we're like, we don't need to make profits; we just need to. Expand, 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 right? So we raise money, pour all that money into marketing, expand market, grow our revenue, grow our GMV, and use that to boost up our valuation and raise another round and use that money to pump into the market again. So that's basically the game we're playing. Not only us, but everybody. But that game stops when there's no money from the VCs, right? So、uh, all of a sudden in 2012, 11, 12, money. If you're、uh, people familiar with the with the e-commerce market back in in China. When the bubble burst for Groupon model, because Groupon model was really just not e-commerce to me, right? Yeah. They sell nothing out of nothing, right? But anyway, so the entire e-commerce market just got no money. Right. So all the VCs backed away from it at yeah. once. Yeah. Exactly. So the VC does that, right? So、yeah. VCs do. They all pour money into one thing and build and overinvest, and then boom! All of a sudden, they don't invest at all, and see all these guys die and last man standing. They may pour the money and merge in a couple of guys and you know IPO, and then they move to another area, and then then they're oh, no more e-commerce now AI,、uh, now you know or mobile. So and we'll get back to we'll get back to e-commerce in three or four years. Exactly. So,、um, so you were stuck. You had to either pivot to profitability very suddenly,、yes. or to sell the company to someone bigger. Yes, exactly. And most of the company died. So the e-commerce, the entire e-commerce industry was just basically wiped out at the peak. About three hundred companies copying Groupon's model in China got funded. That's so crazy! So basically,、it? they're throwing VCs money around and compete with each other. And all of a sudden, when there's no money, there are about only three companies left on the market, and they got bought by Baidu, by big guys, and they acquired. Looking back at it, is there something you would have done differently, or do you think you kind of played the game the right way and just the timing was off? I would say.、Um, 
I would play differently by selecting different investors or grow less aggressively. So basically what I learned was VCs, all they need is a curve. They don't care what you sell. They want you to be the next Facebook, the next Instagram, the next YouTube, whatever, right? But these companies are very light in a way. They don't have to produce brass. They don't have to have, they don't have inventory. They don't have warehouses. They don't have to ship product all over the place, right? So these type of internet companies or mobile companies, they can create a J-curve in a relatively short period of time. And versus uh, we are, we sell brass. No, no, no difference in other bra makers, but we sell most of brass online versus offline. So do you think, because I think a lot of founders are wondering about this like yeah. constantly, but like looking back, do you think it would have been better if you would have had more strategic investors, maybe money from companies that were in textiles or were, yes. were something? Yeah, so basically investors who have longer uh, investment horizon, they don't ask you to go IPO in three years. And also we don't, accelerate that fast three three years is pretty aggressive <laughs> well back then they're like every company is growing they're growing 10x per year yeah. 10x like we're, we're only growing 3x per year so the vc is actually telling me lou you're spending your money too conservative you should spend more money just pump your money what are you going to do with your money pump your money in marketing but the thing is we have to produce those bras we can pump in marketing dollar in 10x but we cannot expand our manufacturing base by 10x that fast, right? Right. Because right? the, the factory, their, their production line, they cannot 10x that much easy, and they, they cannot train people because every single garment is done by human hands. Yeah, and you've got to, I mean, it's yeah. inventory. It has exactly. to be stored somewhere. It has yes. to be moved somewhere. It's exactly. not like internet yeah. advertising, which it's you very switch heavy. on and off. It's very heavy. Yeah. So, so the marketing side is very fast. So supply chain is crucial for goods-related business models, right? Yeah. Uh, we can't ramp up that easily. And, and when you try to run up that easily, uh, or that fast, your quality goes down. Once your quality goes down, your products don't sell. And also your brand starts deteriorating. So all these things happen when you try to go too fast. That makes right? sense. That's basically a valuable lesson I learned. Um, so basically the last three years what we're trying to do was focus on the quality, focus on our brand, try to be conservative. Of course, we let go two-thirds of our people. We cut marketing dollar to zero, but we still have to survive. So basically we switch to survival mode. And, uh, and broke even. So I played high growth strategy before, I played survival and profit strategy before. So all that um, um, you know, was part of my experience. Very, very painful yeah. though. No, but an, an important one. Yes. Coming back to Japan, why Japan? You had connections in China, you had sources of funding and customers both yes. in the US and China. Why Japan? Biggest reason, family reason. Um, my wife is China, Japanese, well, uh, to be more proper, she's a quarter Japanese, but born and raised in, in Japan. And she got pregnant uh, in Beijing because Beijing was very hard to live yeah. in terms of air pollution, in terms of food pollution, the water is con- contains too much um, calcium and magnesium. Like about two to three hundred times more than Tokyo. Yeah, I can, S- stones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could imagine be kind of a, a scary place to be raising little kids. Exactly, and so we're like, it's a it's a fantastic place. It's like wild, wild west, right? You you have a lot of opportunities, but for raising kids, it's too wild. So I always have a, I tell myself to go out of comfort zone. But the moment I had a baby, I'm like, okay, let's go into the comfort zone. <laughs> so I want my family to be in a comfort zone while I can still challenge myself to be out of comfort zone. So that's 
not easy. Whereas see, Japan is a perfect place for me to do both. That's interesting, and I think a lot of older entrepreneurs, myself included, feel exactly the same way. When I was single, I really didn't need much money at all. I didn't spend money. I didn't. But when you have a family, suddenly all that changes. Yes. Family, especially when, when meaning you have kids, right? Your life just all of a sudden changes. A lot of responsibility. So basically, moving back to Japan is the safest choice for us. You know, lower cost in terms of raising a baby, very safe, very um, uh, a wonderful place to live. Healthy, yeah. yeah. And uh, my wife is easy, right? And healthcare is very professional, clean. You know, all the basic stuff, right? I think Japan really is that interesting blend of stability and innovation. Yes, you know you can you really can have both. Yes, a lot of people don't know about that, so I think that's uh, uh, the best kept secret, right? I think so. Well,、yeah. the Japanese government's doing its best to like tell the world. Exactly. But、uh, yeah, I, I think it's amazing. It is. Now, Japan Foodie, you guys have participated in, in a number of the accelerator programs here in Tokyo. Yes. Has that been beneficial? Is that something you'd well, recommend to other startups? Definitely, definitely. Like you said, the, not only the government but also the big companies—they try to innovate, they try to change. Accelerator programs are designed for that, so for big companies to collaborate with startups.、Yeah. Well, I guess、um, we, we should explain to to those that are in the U.S.、Yes. Japanese-style accelerators tend to be very different. Really? From the U.S., I, I don't know the ones in the U.S.、Oh, okay. Yeah, I only know well, the ones here. In the U.S., it tends to be. Financial support, a lot of mentoring. Oh, and they try to grow these startups and then kick them out of the nest. And okay, but in Japan,、well, most accelerators are industry specific. It's、mm-hmm. closer to like open innovation programs. Yes, yes.、Uh, I'll give you an example for JR. So we partnered with JR East,、uh, the largest railway company in Japan, right? So they're like, so we have our railway business, we have our hotel business, we have a food and beverage business. We're actually the biggest bento company in Japan, where they sell more equipment than anybody else. They have a lot of hotels. They have、uh, you know all this kind of stuff. So here's our resources, and it's your role to come up with the innovative business models or projects to leverage our resources and make it more usable or make a different、uh, tweak. That's basically what we are. So it's like okay, so now you have all those restaurants and、uh, hotels in your in your business, but I don't think anybody know. About that, right? So it's like discover.、Uh, I don't know. You can pay. You can not, definitely not reserve, right? So why not using our service to to leverage your your hotels and and restaurants? The main advantage of the accelerators was just you had access to a really large customer base. They use us to access to 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 promote themselves to the Chinese, and we leverage their restaurants to actually expand into our merchant base. So win win. We had participated in a series of accelerator programs. They're all like that. So it's all about synergy. You have this, we have this. Together, we're better, right? Right.、Um, and typically, they don't provide financial aids, right? But they buy our products, right? So like we design something for them, they'll they'll pay for it.、Um, well,、yeah. Japanese business customers are incredibly loyal. So those kind of partnerships and those type of customers are incredibly valuable. Yes, and the names. Values are, are are really just、uh, enormous as well, right? So JR, your business relationship with them is a big help for us to get actually other customers. Sure, having that big name gives you a lot of credibility with、exactly. other Japanese customers. Yeah. Okay, Lou. But before、sure. we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. Okay. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all. 
the education system, yes. the way people think about risk, the attitude towards foreign immigration, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan, what would you change? I would say their financial system. Oh, all right. What would yeah. you change? I think Japanese are very innovative. I don't think there's lack of innovation in Japan, actually. I think Japan is among the most innovative people in the world. Think about all the innovation they did in the past, right? The TVs, the cars, and everything. They're pretty innovative. The phones, right? Before, the iPhone is dominated by Japan. What I think, their lack of entrepreneurship is a different story. It's not that diversity or anything like that. It's if you start a company, you don't gain too much mm. compared to your peer. But if you fail, you're done for your life. That's why nobody is doing startups. It's simple risk and reward. Exactly. Yeah. So you can't borrow money. Once you borrow money, you have, you have, to, you have to be the guarantor uh, where your wife or your family is. But once you, you go bankrupt... So basically, there's no limit liability in Japan, right? right? So it's all unlimited liability. So once your startup failed, you have to divorce with your wife... Otherwise, your wife's asset is all basically, you know, taken by the Yeah, home. you have to carry that around with you for uh, your whole your life. Kid, your kid has to pay for your loan, for your father's loan. Think about it. But 9 out of 10 startups fail. So that's a risky gamble to take. So like we said, like the serial entrepreneur, right? In China or in the U.S., it's something very similar. Your company can fail, but your personal wealth could get preserved. And then you can use that to start with your second company. But in, in, in Japan, if you fail once, your asset... Your kids has that, your parents has that, everything's gone. Well, I think we're seeing that changing now. I mean, there's a lot of risk capital available. There's a lot of VCs on the market now that I think very few startup founders need to borrow money or put up their own assets to start a company anymore. Uh, that's what I mean, the financial system. So yeah. it's not only just the bank, but also VCs, right? And the VCs, they also, the problem about VCs is they think like a banker. So bankers, they should think like VCs, and VCs should think like real VCs, you know what I mean? Okay, so it's not just the structural change, it's an attitude shift. So once you start a company, there are only two ways you can get money, right, from, from the financial system. Either from the banks, you borrow a loan, or you get from the VCs, equity financing, right? And, and what, what I really hate about the Japanese VCs, uh, the first question I have is about, is about profit, right? So a lot of Silicon Valley startups, they don't look at profits, again, right? Maybe in two, three, maybe five years, we start thinking about profit. So you have a roadmap of leading to profit. But so basically, the US VCs, they're trying to find the next Facebook, the next Google. Right, right. Versus in Japan, they try to find the next profitable um, yeah. uh, SME. They're all, calculating, they're all calculating your right. discounted cash flow for the next five years. And, and so basically, that forms a whole dynamic in Japan. Nobody really dreamed big. Do you think that's changing now? Yes, um, I think that's also changing because I think, you know, with Merikari, you know, they, they went up here pretty big, you know, in Japan, but in the world, it's not that big, right? Yeah, but for and, Japan, uh, that's dreaming big. I'm uh, part of this entrepreneur community called Chiba Dojo. With, you know, Chiba-san, he's a famous angel investor. He invested about 50 companies. So last month, we had an um, offsite for, and the theme was within the next five to 10 years, out of that 50 company, we want to have at least 20 unicorns uh, out of Japan. The key is for the entrepreneurs to dream big, for the VCs to really back up the, the companies that dream big and uh, pay less attention to the practical one or two year profitable goals, right? If you have the same, spend the same effort, try to go big, try to, try to change the world instead of try to build another profitable small company, right? right? You can go IPO for $50 million. Excellent. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of that moving forward. Yes. 
Well, listen, thanks so much for Thank sitting you. down with me. Thank you very much. And we're back. One of the topics we covered, and one I wish we had more time to dive into, was the future of e-commerce platforms. Are they all destined to become advertising platforms? Well, it's true. Rakuten, Amazon, Tabo are all generating more and more of their revenue from ads. But is that sustainable? I mean, would it be worth it for a brand to have a presence on, say, Amazon, if they also had to pay Amazon advertising fees to enable customers to find their products on Amazon? In the short run, Amazon can do the math and make sure that the companies would not actually be losing money on Amazon, and it would probably be a short-term money loser for any one company to pull their products off. But what if long-term major brands started pulling out of Amazon to build traffic to their own sites? Granted, that might amount to simply robbing Amazon to pay Google. So they might have to spend the same amount of money either way. But it's going to be interesting to see how far Amazon can squeeze their merchants for revenues. Getting back to Japan foodie. You know, the importance of Chinese tourism in Japan doesn't get talked about much in the Western media. And why should it, I guess? It doesn't involve the West. But as Lou explained, inbound Chinese tourism is huge in Japan, And with China's growing economy and growing middle and upper class, the number of tourists is only going to increase. Another example of how the balance of payments, if not the balance of power, is shifting is that, as Lou mentioned, Chinese tourists are spending more per visitor than American tourists. And although I had to edit this part of our interview out, Lou also explained that the software developers he was bringing to Japan from China were actually taking a pay cut to move to Japan. Trying to make predictions about China is, well, difficult. And as Yogi Berra once said, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. But what else can we do? The future economic relationships between Japan and China, the potential for innovative and profitable startups, is going to be amazing. If you want to talk more about startups or payment systems, or lingerie for that matter, Lou and I would love to hear from you. So come by DisruptingJapan.com, show 133, and leave a comment. Hey, also, feel free to follow Disrupting Japan on Twitter, Facebook, or even join our LinkedIn group. If you want to ask a question there, I guarantee you I'll respond. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan. <laughs>